basically issues don't win elections. It just it gives the candidate a foundation to stand on. Uh, right. Clinton was always genius at this, and that he would find out what he, we did this with Clinton. We'd find out uh, what the people thought about all the issues, and we'd find out where people converged with his Republican opponent. Like if they were had the had the same feelings about Clinton as they did uh, his Republican opponent in certain areas, Clinton would get up and say, "Okay," he said, "My opponent's a good man." He said, uh, "We agree on school vouchers. We agree on this. We agree on that. What we don't agree on is a nuclear power plant that's going to be built on the border of Arkansas and Mississippi or Tennessee, whatever it was." He said, "We don't agree on that. That's what this election's all about." So the big question is this, how are candidates like us, who don't have big money donors, who are spending money out of our own pockets to get elected, how do we get our message out, raise enough money to win, target the right voters, and yet still remain true to what got us into politics to begin with? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Matt Wyatt, and welcome to Campaign Secrets. Welcome, everybody, to Campaign Secrets. This is Matt Wyatt. And I hope everybody's doing great today. Uh, we're recording this in the middle of a pandemic. And I think a lot of podcasts are going to be started right now because people have time on their hands. They're finally doing the things that they've always wanted to do but didn't have the time to do. And that's certainly the case for me. I'm reading a lot of books that have been on my shelf for a long time that I haven't been able to get to. And this podcast is is something that in my heart I've, I've wanted to do because I know that candidates at any level, I don't care what party you're you're in or what you're running for, need to have good advice. And we live in a digital age right now, and we live in an age where so much is on social media, and that has its place. But we really need to take a, a step back and listen to the politicians and listen to uh, the consultants that were there at the beginning. And we are blessed in our profession as political consultants to still have many of the pioneers still with us. And I wish to God I could go back and interview some folks. But right now we have Raymond Strother, who is on today's episode. And in the interview, I, I believe I call, I call him the godfather of, of political consulting. But he's really one of the founding fathers of political consulting. He has blazed a trail that the people in, in the political world have followed behind ever since. And Raymond is somebody that, you know, he's from Port Arthur, Texas. He got his start as an AP writer, and uh, which I think some of these folks that come into the p- political business that weren't just in campaigns, but were writers or with Mark McKinnon in the previous interview who were mus- musicians and songwriters, I think they actually make the best political ad guys and girls. I think they're the ones that understand message and telling a story because that's really what a campaign is. It's telling a story, telling your story, telling the story about your opponent. And there is no better person in the business than Raymond Strother. And in this episode, we talk about his time in Louisiana politics, some of the interesting characters um, that he had to deal with. I mean, my God, the the folks in, in Louisiana – that that have run for office over the years, the the Russell Longs, the the folks like that, which which was where he got his start is working for Senator Long, and who was the the son of Huey Long, the you know the great Huey Long, and for those young folks that are listening to this, to this uh, podcast, if you don't know who that is, go back and look it up. 
uh, or read All the King's Men with Robert Penn Warden, because that's a fictional book that really tells the story of this outrageous character in Louisiana. And uh, so, so that is where Raymond Strother comes from. That's where he got his start is from sort of the, the outrageous politicians from, from that, from that time period. And he tells stories about his time working with Bill Clinton from 1980 to 1990 and uh, what he learned from that. He talks about the two presidential campaigns for Gary Hart. Gary Hart was a friend of his, a client and, uh, and what happened on the monkey business and why he wasn't there that day that that happened. And, what might have happened in our history if he did make that trip. That's a very interesting story that he told, as well as um, what he shared about Dick Morris and Lee Atwater and and many other stories that he tells in this podcast. So sit back, enjoy this. There's a lot to learn. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. This is interesting. Um, interesting talk from somebody that has seen a lot and has a lot to share and tell. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. It's good talking to you again. Let's just kind of pick up uh, again. Um, so I've got Ray Strother, uh, Raymond Strother online here. Raymond is, uh, I, I hate to say the word godfather of, <laughs> of politics because of, <laughs> because of negative connotations to that. But honestly, those of us who are in the political uh, world and especially on the Democratic side, uh, Raymond Strother really is the godfather of modern modern political television and communication. Um, and, uh, he's a guy who's, who's got lots of great stories, wrote a great book called falling up, how a redneck helped invent political consulting. And, uh, and those of us that grew up in red, you know, that call ourselves redneck and I'm one of them. It's not a, it's not, you know, we can call each other redneck. I think, I don't think other people necessarily could call us, <laughs> call us redneck. I don't, maybe you view that differently, but, uh, I, well, it comes from the, it comes from Scotland, uh, comes from about uh, 1650 or something. Uh, there were people were painting their necks red. They were, their necks were being painted red by the British if they were part of the contrarian society. Anyway, it's it's a term that came from Scotland. It, it isn't anything that came from plowing a field, as people think. Yeah, I didn't know that. So I learned something new today, which I know I'll learn a lot yeah. on this call with you. Now, you're from Texas. <laughs> you're from Texas originally. You're yeah. a Texas boy. How did you get involved in politics? Well, my father was a uh, working guy, worked for Guff Oil, and uh, he was a man of virtually no education, maybe third or fourth grade, but he was a staunch union guy. And he told me from my very early years, or months even, that working people only had a chance if they band together. And he said, no one is ever going to offer to give us a raise. No one's ever going to offer to give us medical care. No one's ever going to offer to give us any kind of retirement. So we have to, we have to demand it ourselves. And so he was an aggressive, militant union guy. And I learned to read, sit in his lap, reading the CIO newspaper that came once a month. Uh, we would read every story word for word, and he would help me with the words. So I literally learned to read that way. And so I always thought, as a lot of lower income Americans did, their only way out was politics. Franklin Roosevelt had proven that. And so politics was sort of the fiber of how we're, some people go into clergy, for example. Mm -hmm. My generation would have gone into politics for the same reason. 
So when I got out of school, uh, high school, and went to, went to college, I, I remember my father was sitting in the backyard drinking coffee in an old lawn chair. And I went out there and I said, Dad, uh, I called him Daddy, actually. I said, I'm going to college. He said, that's great. I've always wanted my kids to go to college. Where are you going? I said, Northwestern State up in Louisiana. They'd give me a track scholarship. We didn't have any money. and We'd been on strike for, I don't know, two or three months. So there was no money. And uh, he said, that's great. He said, I know Natchez. He said, I once worked when I was a young man, worked in a timber crew around there. So anyway, it was like that. So I hitchhiked up to Natchez, Louisiana, and started Northwestern State. And I was there about, I don't know, a year and a half. And uh, I got called in the president's office. I was working for the student newspaper there. Got called in the president's office, and uh, President Kaiser was his name. He said, Mr. Strother, you're not happy at Northwestern. I said, no, sir, I'm very happy here because all my expenses were being paid. Uh, I didn't have any spending money, but everything else was being paid. We'd pick up pecans and sell them for spending money. And he said, well, we're not happy having you here, and we'd like for you to be gone by Friday. And what he was angry about is I demonstrated against the John Burt Society in front of the assembly building. And I suspect he was a member of the John Burke Society. <laughs> and uh, so I was I packed up and went to LSU and uh, was accepted there readily and you know had a good career there, was editor of the paper, was advertising manager of the paper, and went from that to Associated Press. So it, it turned out okay. But uh, that's how I ended up in Louisiana. I, I, and the reason I went to LSU was that my trip, Credits from Northwestern transferred easier there than they did the UT because I was going to go to the University of Texas. And uh, I don't know if they wanted me anyway. But anyway, I got into LSU quite easily. Who were some of your heroes when you started out in politics? Oh, Franklin Roosevelt was God. Uh, My father said that uh, George Washington wasn't the father of our country, that Franklin Roosevelt was the father of our country that without him, we would live in a completely different society. And he was correct there. So, And Walter Ruther, head of the uh, Auto Workers Union, was another hero in our family. Uh, so uh, Harry Truman was a hero in our family. Uh, after a while, it took my father a while to adjust to Harry Truman after Franklin Roosevelt. But I remember my proudest moment was when uh, Eisenhower finally won uh, Beats Eli Stevenson. Mm-hmm. I was, God, I was young. But my father came home from work with a bumper sticker, and it said, don't blame me. I voted Democrat. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to let you put this on the car. So I went out and proudly, it was a ceremony almost, I went out and proudly put it on the car. So, you know, politics actually was in my blood. So when I uh, told my father I was going to study journalism, he said, why don't you become a labor lawyer? You could do some good for us. And I said, well, maybe I can write something nice about labor. And that satisfied him. He said, okay, be a, be a journalist then. And that'd be okay. So, you That's know, I got into politics. And if you, and if you, oh, how really? Go ahead. After that, okay. I hate to interrupt you, but after okay. that, I was, uh, I was working for the AP. And uh, as a night man, and I only got the the garbage assignments uh, because I was the low man on the totem pole in the bureau, and as it should have been, I was still in school. Incidentally, I was in graduate school, and uh, 
I was following the Louisiana governor's race. There were about 10 candidates. So I got, I was assigned the candidate who was running last. His name was John McKithen. And, uh, he and I got to be chummy. And one day toward the end of the race, he said, uh, when I'm elected, I want you to come work for me and be my speech writer. And I said, I kind of dismissed. I said, sure, happy to. And anyway, he got elected a great upset and he got elected and I didn't hear from him. And I didn't, of course, I was too shy to call a governor of the state. And I got a telephone call and he said, Raymond, he said, I thought you were coming to work for me. I said, I never heard from you. He said, well, he said, you know, you should have shown up. So anyway, he, I went to work for him and, uh, as his press secretary. So you and after have... a while, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say, after... after a while, uh... <laughs> you, you took, so journalism into politics. I mean, you sort of leveraged what you yeah. learned through journalism. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, I was always into current affairs and spent a lot of time, uh, even in, in graduate school and as an undergraduate, uh, studying everything. I remember there was a great publication it's called As Others See Us, and they took uh, editorials from all over the world so you could read what other people thought about the U.S. and what, what we said about other countries, uh, but basically for what other people said about us. And I was fascinated by that because... We live in such a bubble. We think everybody agrees with us on everything. Right. But anyway, I, I, I kept up on affairs, and I was president of Young Democrats at that time and editor of the school newspaper. And uh, developed my left leanings probably as editor of that paper because uh, at that time the Young Americans for Freedom were beginning to jump up. And uh, they were militant against me. I was, I was the devil. And so finally, uh, I compromised. I gave a guy named Martin Blackwell a column, a weekly column in the newspaper. That's a daily newspaper. And uh, later he became a key figure in the Reagan administration. But uh, hmm. anyway, my college career was also directed at politics. And so I, as, after I became a press secretary, the governor said he was going to hire someone else. It was actually a young lady who was uh, quite beautiful. And uh, I said, Governor, I'm your press secretary. He said, oh, Raymond, he said, I don't pay you enough. He said, go downtown and rent a little office, and I'll run legislators by you, and you can do campaigns for them. So I did. And it, it started there, running little legislative races, uh, up to running a statewide race for treasurer, which is another great story. But anyway, uh, and then from there to Washington, D.C. So that's now you know everything about me. So when you did that, what year was that when you started helping running campaigns? I'd say 67, probably. I mean, that's 68, just me. I don't know exactly. I just, I was graduated, I, was, I got my graduate degree in uh, 65, so it must have been 67 or 68. So the word political, the, the terms political consultant wasn't really even invented at that point. I mean, you had Matt Reese and you had some other folks out there. Yeah. But to do it for a living, did you think Joe that Napolitan. was... Something? No, Joe Napolitan, yeah. Joe Napolitan was, was kind of the father of us all, to be honest, he and Matt Reese. But no, we, uh, people who did politics uh, called themselves a political advertising agency. But like me, when I first established, I did bread accounts and bank accounts and all sorts of things, you know, rather uh, general advertising and then when a political campaign came along, I would take that. And so finally I was able to ditch all the non-political stuff, which I hated with a passion. Mm -hmm. 
and go strictly into politics. And I spent the next 50 years doing politics. And, and to start off in Louisiana, which, you know, Kentucky has a colorful, colorful history itself, but Louisiana's got to have the most colorful history of politicians in the United States and scandals and everything else. Yeah, you have, yeah, you have a cultural clash there. Uh, it used to be Catholic, Protestant. It was uh, people who had come in from Nova Scotia. Uh, they call themselves Cajuns now. Uh, and they had a different lifestyle. So there was a South Louisiana and a North Louisiana, and they were completely poles apart. Uh, North Louisiana is, would now be called Republican, although at that time they were called Annie Longs because the state was divided into, it was all, they were all Democrats, but they were pro-Long Democrats and anti-Long Democrats. So we had two parties even then, and so the anti-Long Democrats became Republicans. But corruption was part of it. They learned through Huey Long that they could put up with anything if they got results. And he built them bridges, gave them free textbooks, gave them free lunches. And they were willing to tolerate anything because Louisiana was so dirt poor, people didn't even have shoes. Mm-hmm. So corruption was their way out. Gotcha. And so when did you, uh, you worked in Louisiana, when did you go national and started working in other states? And uh, I started easing out in 1980. Uh, 79 probably, but in 80, uh, a guy named Zell Miller in Georgia mm-hmm. called me and well, he actually came down to Baton Rouge to see me. And, uh, also a guy named Bill Gunner in Florida was running, wanted to run against Richard Stone, the, uh, incumbent U S Senator, democratic U S Senator there. And they both hired me and I did races for them both. Uh, Zell was running for Lieutenant governor and, uh, the Florida race really catapulted me because we beat up Democratic incumbent, which is very hard to do. Mm-hmm. And I was given a lot, a lot of credit, probably credit I didn't necessarily deserve, but I got a lot of credit for it. And right after that, uh, Senator Russell Long called me and said, uh, do you know this guy named Woody Jenkins? I said, yeah, I know him. I, you know, I've known him around LSU. He said, he's going to run against me for the U S Senate. And Long had never run any television or anything. This was, you know, this was a new day. And this was 1980, 80, 80. So he said, uh, he's going on the air in 16 days with a 30 minute, uh, show at that time. Everybody ran long, long television pieces. And he said, I want to have one. I said, Senator in 16 days. He said, yep. He said, that's all the time we have. We want to be on the air at the same time he is. So, I was new to the film business, but you know, had, had done some. But uh, so I called a, a a guy in New York that had a worldwide reputation as a handheld cameraman named Bob Fiore, and and uh, I told him to put me together a great sound man. He did a guy named Harry Lapham, and a great lighting director, and he did. Uh, anyway, they called, came in from New York, and met me in Washington, and we spent two days interviewing Long. I did, and uh, filming it in his car, at his apartment, in his office, all over. And uh, I took the film back to uh, New I took uh, Then we went to Louisiana, I'm sorry. Went to Louisiana and went to his old farm. He called it the Pea Patch Farm. Uh, we filmed in Louisiana, filled him with, filmed him with good old boys, et cetera. And... Uh, in Washington, a great story came out of Washington. It's 
mm. to show to highlight what's changed. I'm in the Senate conference, uh, and uh, I'm filming, and I'll you know I film boxes, all sorts of things lined up in the hall outside the room, and I have on sitting on the couch Senator Monahan, Senator Nunn from Georgia, uh, and two or three other senators. I don't remember exactly. who. at this time. So uh, I was interviewing and Bob Dole came. He said, hey, what's going on in here? All these boxes and everything. I said, Senator, we're filming uh, <clears throat> a test, some testimonials for Senator Long. And uh, Monahan said, Bob, come on in here and speak up for Long. I said, uh, I said, Senator, this is a Democratic film and you're Republican to Dole. <laughs> he said, ah, he said, I don't care. He said, Long's my friend. And he went in and sat down on the couch next to Sam Nunn and next to, uh, I don't remember who he sat next to, but anyway, they had a give and take about who could say the greatest things about Russell Long. And after it was over, I told, I told Doyle, uh, I said, I'm going to put this in a 30 minute film. He said, I don't care. And I did. And, uh, that film's available, uh, at the University of Oklahoma Archives, the Julian Cantor Film Archives, yeah. they have all my work. I don't have I don't have anything anymore. Uh, so uh, he uh, we we ran. Then I went to New York. I took the film to New York and had it processed, and I waited. And I hired two film editors and a room at the film st- uh, studio on Ninth Avenue. And uh, this film was un. Unwritten. I hadn't written it, and but I was using my recall from my interviews and trying to put together my. So what I found was that people had lost by polling. I found that people no longer knew that Huey Long was the father of Russell Long, mm-hmm. and uh, so I had to reestablish that. So I got on the phone and found some people in California film archives, and I found a piece of lost what they thought was lost film of long sitting with a guy who wrote every man a king at a piano and they were they were singing but it was a silent piece of film and uh earlier that week i'd been in the attic of the senate office building and the uh AA was a guy named kirkpatrick really nice guy anyway i was up there and i found a whole series of very thick records and i picked one up and it crumbled in my hand that's how old it was and the attic was hot so I took them over to the Smithsonian and had them transcribed. And uh, for they kept them, of course, but as they should have. But uh, in there, we found a snippet of Long and this guy, I think it was named Carrera, but I can't, re- I can't remember, singing Every Man a King. Well, I took that, and it almost matched the piece of film I had. So I opened the, uh, the film with this old piece of film of Huey Long, singing every man a king and it's sinking it, was not terribly bad and uh then i went from that to say now there's another long russell long running for re-election and went from there so anyway so what i did was we had to have it in 16 days so i had two editors and uh i had a typewriter there not a computer we didn't have computers I had a typewriter and a ream of paper and i i wrote the beginning to it 
and I found a guy named Ed Rose, who was a very famous announcer. I had an unlimited budget. I could do anything I wanted long. You know, there was no end to the money he mm-hmm. could raise. And, uh, and uh, I had this guy, Ed Rose, standing by, and we cut a scratch track first. But I would write, I don't know, 50 words, 80 words. I'd, I'd record it in my own voice, and we'd match the film to it. Then I'd look at it and write the next 100 words. And so for, I don't know, I, I slept on a cot in that room, and these two editors would come and go. One of them would come for about 10 hours, and the other for about 10 hours. And we'd send out for food. And on the 15th day, I uh, finished it and uh, took it to a negative cutter uh, named Penrat. I'll never forget. She was a very famous negative cutter. And I took it to her. Uh, I don't remember where she lived, down the village someplace, in a cab. And I, I hadn't slept in forever. I mean, I can't remember sleeping except little cat naps on that cot. And... Uh, I got out of the cab and went to her door and realized I'd left the master tape, the master film, the negative, in the cab. <laughs> and I started running. And I ran to the corner, and the cab had been stopped by a traffic light. And I, I rescued it and took it to Noel. And so on the 16th day, we put it on the air. So that was one of the most traumatic times. I had a, a, a similar incident later with Senator Lloyd Benson of Texas, but that was one of the most traumatic times of my political career because it was live or die. You know, I had the most powerful man in America as a client and I had an opportunity to showcase myself and had I failed, I would have probably had to find something else to do for a living. So you became known as the go-to guy, especially for Southern Democrats at that time. And like you said, you had huge big name clients. And what year did you work for Bill Clinton? I worked for Bill Clinton for a lot of years, starting in 82. Uh, they ran every two years. Right, in Arkansas, yeah. Uh, 80, 82, 84, 80. Then he changed the Constitution. I don't remember which year that was. And I did a four-year term for him. I worked for him until he ran for president. Gotcha. What What uh, was your impression of Governor Clinton back in those days? I know, uh, Did you, I guess, when he lost re-election, he got elected in 78 for governor. Lost in 80. Yeah. And so you came right. aboard like what eighty eighty two like that area eighty two eighty two, so his yeah, his comeback you were back there so you were there with Dick Morris also. Yeah, was, Dick Morris is the one who brought me in actually. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, Dick Morris wanted to. I, I was at that time doing quite well, and Dick Morris wanted to establish a relationship. So he literally gave me Bill Clinton, and uh, he introduced me to Clinton. And he would Clinton would do anything Dick Morris wanted. To tell you the truth. He, it was quite amazing to watch. And so uh, Morris introduced me to Clinton. And I remember when we left the mansion that day, we were going down the, the front steps, and some photographers from the uh, Little Rock newspaper, the Gazette, I think it is, took a picture of me and ran, and it overheard me telling Morris this. I said, this man's going to be president. How's that impressed? And Morris said, no, he can't because he's from a tiny state. He'd never be able to raise the money. He has a southern accent. A lot of reasons he couldn't win. But uh, Clinton impressed me that much. Uh, now, there are other things I later found out I didn't like about Clinton, but Clinton was a was a great intellect, just no question about that. Uh, he could do things I'd never seen before. He never forgot a name. If he went down a rope line and was introduced to people, 
and he met them later on Fifth Avenue in New York, walking down the street. He'd remember them by name. Yeah, I, and ask about their children. Ask about their children, Geraldine and Jerry. So yeah, I saw that when I worked for for Bill Clinton in '92 in the New Hampshire primary when folks didn't know who he was right before all the the Jennifer Flowers and all that, but just at small events. Yeah. And then people in New Hampshire, as you probably know, they go back to the same events again and again and again, you know, to see the candidates. Yeah. And he'd remember them. Right. And, um, Oh, that's right. And it was, it was, he, it was like watching secretariat, you know, on, in, the, in the political realm. I and mean, you look at candidates and you see yeah. enough candidates, you know, the ones that have it and the ones that don't. And he, he, he had, he had it and he had it not just, he did emoting not just being a campaigner but he had it you know he was smart enough to govern and to get things done and and you don't have that combination very often usually it's one or the other they're great personality but not great legislator or governor he kind of he kind of had both of those combinations he was all of it and uh you know without some slip-ups uh i'm gonna i'm gonna call them moral slip-ups i'll try and find something else to say about it but uh he you know, he would have been considered the greatest president in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he still is by many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one slip up is what he'll be remembered for, unfortunately. And that one slip up probably is why Hillary wasn't elected, to tell you the truth, because Trump was able to bear down on that. Uh, Trump of all people. What was it like working with Dick Morrison and those characters back then? Well... Dick Morris was a, a chameleon. He was anything you wanted him to be. And after a while, I found out that that Morris was inventing his numbers. Uh, he he had a he called himself a pollster, but he, he had no facilities to poll whatsoever. He used Penn and Sean to do his mm-hmm. polling. And I remember one time, and he, he wanted my business so badly or association with me so badly that he gave me a key to his office in New York. At this time, doing only film, I did all my film work in New York, all the processing and editing. And so he said, take this, and anytime you need a typewriter or anything, go up to my office, night or day, here's the key, and go in. So uh, what it did it happened. So I, I got, he also gave me a, a taxi voucher number I could use any place I wanted to go, but I didn't use that. Uh, but anyway, I went up to his office one night about 11 o'clock and I opened the door and this little lady ran out, a little squat kind of overweight lady. Who are you? Who are you? What are you doing? What are you? I said, Mr. Morris says I can use the office. I said, uh, you do polling for us. She said, Oh, oh yeah. She said, uh, we're about finished. I said, about finished. She because it just started that day. She said, yeah, it will have all 200 done. I said, it's an 800 poll. She said, yeah, we just do 200 and multiply everything times four. <laughs> I said, oh my God. That's when I realized he was a fraud. But I was also working with him in Texas and Mark White of Texas had almost the same relationship with him. If Mars said something, he believed it. Uh, it was it was remarkable. Then he slowly fell out of favor, and people discovered what he was doing and the fact that he was. I went one time. I went to see Jim Guy Tucker, and I'd known Jim Guy Tucker in Arkansas for a while. And Jim Guy took me aside. He said, "I'm going to hire you," but he said, "I first need to know: Can you work with Dick Morris?" I said, "I said Jim Guy, 
Dick Morris is representing your opponent, the Republican. He said, well, maybe. And Morris was playing both sides. He was hired by both of them. Clearly. Do you think he was playing both sides in 96 when? Yeah. 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 So I refused. I refused the campaign. I said, no, I had enough fun. Uh, But yeah, that's... uh, that was the Dick Morris saga of my life. <laughs> I, you know, I actually, at first, he's a very charismatic character. Mm-hmm. Uh, his mother was uh, a, an editor for a big publishing company in New York. His father was a real estate attorney. Uh, and he spent, a, Morris was spending about a million dollars a year before taxes. Uh, and my wife and I traveled with him. We went to England with him and, and uh went to several places with him and we used to visit him occasionally his home in Connecticut. He had a home in Connecticut, an apartment in New York and a, and a, a home someplace in on uh, out of, past Long Island Sound. So I knew him really, really well. And uh, he, uh, he he called me one night. My wife and I had taken a trip around the world. We had uh, we bought one of these Delta tickets. You can go as long as you go forward. You can keep going anywhere you want to go. And we just gotten back from uh, the last leg, and we were at our place up in the mountains in Montana, on the Big Hole River. And he called me and he said, Raymond, he said, uh, uh, I've got a great opportunity. You and your wife come to dinner at the White House uh, Sunday with the ambassador from Ireland and his wife and Hillary. And Eileen, me, that's his wife, Eileen, and the president. And so my wife, by this time, who detested him, I turned and we were trying to sleep uh, because of our jet lag. And I turned over and told her, she said, I don't have anything to wear. I said, you know, you can get something to wear. She said, no. She said, I, I can't get anything to wear for something like that uh, out here. And I said, Dick, I said, uh, I didn't want to tell him that. So I said, Dick, we don't have any way to get there. There are only a few flights out of Butte. He said, man, you're eating dinner with the president of the United States and the ambassador from Maryland. Rent a jet. And I said, nah, I can't do that. So anyway, we didn't go. And uh, Morris later called me, and I figured out what the deal was. He wanted to run a splinter campaign. He was running a side campaign which he did, and he needed me to make media. And he said, I want you, he said, I'm going to hire you to do the media, and you're going to split commissions with me. And I said, Dick, I don't split commissions. And he said, well, this time you can't. We're talking about tens of millions of dollars. And he said, uh, we're talking about a lot of money for you. I said, Dick, I don't split commissions. So he hired a guy named Hank Sheinkoff to do it, and I think Sheinkoff gave him all the commissions. I'm not sure. Uh, never got much credit for it, but... Uh, and didn't deserve much. The work was really poor. So, yeah, what, you worked for also for Gary Hart, didn't you? The Hart campaign yeah, in 84? Yeah, one of my, one of my, I did two campaigns for him. I, I was in the campaign that folded because of mm-hmm. Donna Rice. In fact, I've seen Gary several times. Uh, I saw him about a year ago. Last I was going through Denver, I called him. We had lunch together. Uh, he's one of my favorite candidates either ever. Because yeah, I loved him. I was a huge when I was in high school. I was a huge Gary Hart fan. <laughs> yeah, he was a man of great intellect. You know, Oxford PhD. Later, uh, had written a lot of books on foreign policy and still continues to do so. And he cared about the country. It was amazing. One time, my wife and I were at a fundraising uh, event in 
Aspen, somewhere out of Aspen at some oil man's place. And he was talking about the campaign, but he wasn't talking about him. He was talking about America, and he started weeping. And I'll never forget that. He uh, he cared that deeply about things. Uh, and I was very close to him in 87. I was, um, I was trying to help him organize, trying not to organize the campaign. That isn't my forte, but I was trying to find the right message. And so I know I called a bunch of uh, rural sociologists in to meet meet him and have dinner with him at Bill Broadhurst's apartment a couple of times. And things were going very well. And he was, I don't think there's any question he was going to be elected. He was, it was, the kids were on him. He was mm-hmm. ready to go. But, uh, I was a great admirer. He's a very distant man, but I was a great admirer. And I won't say we were friends, although we spent a lot of time together. I don't know if, you know, his, he had some friends, but, uh, I don't know if you read recently when I told, when I had lunch with him about a year ago, I told him that what had happened on the monkey business. I knew from Lee Atwater, Atwater, just before he died, called me. Atwater and I would uh, talk after campaigns when we were on opposite sides about why I did this and why he did that. We'd meet for coffee usually the day or two days after the election and talk about things. So Lee had called me and said, uh, you know, I did the I did the monkey business episode. I put it together, and he explained. And we talked about three minutes. It wasn't long, but he took credit for it. And he just said, "I just wanted to tell you I'm sorry." And so, uh, Gary and well, I, 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 I had no, up. actually, I had no idea. I'd never heard that story. That's very interesting. Well, it was on Rachel Maddow devoted the whole uh, section to it. Um, I was in Europe at the time and didn't didn't hear it, but I got got the replay on it later. Uh, so anyway, I told Gary as we stood up from dinner. I told him lunch. I told him that, and he said, "My God," he said, "That changes everything." I said, "How?" He said, "It vindicates me somewhat." He said, "I." He said, "Can I tell someone?" I said, "I don't care, Gary. It's, it, I really don't." He said, "I just want to tell Warren Beatty." Uh, Billy Shore, who, who was his uh, traveling aide and assistant in the AA, and uh, he named one other person, Sue Casey, who was the person who pulled New Hampshire through for him in, in 84, and he named one other person. I said, I'm fine with that. And Oh, I know. It was a guy from uh, Atlantic Magazine, Folsom, Fuller, what's his name? Anyway, he uh, he said, I want to tell him. He's a, he's a friend, and... Uh, so this reporter called me, and I'm driving to uh, Natchitoches, Louisiana. I, I taught there off and on for 10 years. I had a chair there, uh, the Urban Wise Chair of Journalism. So I was driving down there, which I'd never done before, and this reporter called me. He said, Raymond, I've known you for a long time. I said, yeah. He said, tell me about this Gary Hart, Lee Atwater story. And I outlined it for him. I said, there's you know, not much to tell, a two-minute conversation with Lee Atwater, a man who was dying. And he said, do you think there's a story here? I said, no, I don't. He said, as a journalist, do you think there's a story here? I said, no, I don't think there's a story there. I said, first of all, you're talking to a partisan for Gary Hart. Secondly, the words of a dead man. I said, third, the timeliness of it as many years ago. I said, I, I, think, I don't think there's a story there. And he said, I don't either. He said, I'll get back to you on it. And he said, I don't, I don't see the story. I said, you know, the whole interview with me about this took two minutes, and that's all there is. 
There is nothing else. There's no proof. There's no way to document it. He said, no, no, we're in complete agreement. So before I got to Natchitoches, which was the next day, he called me again. He said, Raymond, he said, uh, my editor, Go, I think his name's Goldberg, said that uh, he wants a story out of this because a movie's coming out. And uh, he, wants, he wants a story about this. And I said, okay, it's up to you. He said, okay, I'm going to read you the story and tell me if I've made any errors. In Atlantic, he read it to me. I said, no, you straight on. You, you said everything exactly right. He also explained in that article, which I didn't necessarily approve of, but I'm a, I'm an LAP guy. I don't, I don't ever restrict anything. I don't believe it off the record, but he explained that I was dying at that point. And, uh, he, uh, he said that, I think he was using my health just as a reason, as an explanation of why I would do such an audacious thing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he uh, his story ran, and my wife and I went to Italy. We we used to take a house for a month in Italy every year, and we were in Volterra, Italy. And uh, I got this frantic message from my son saying, "You were all over television last night." I said, "For what?" He said, "Rachel Maddow." And this reporter from uh, Fallows, Jim Fallows. Jim Fallows, uh-huh. Jim Fallows. Jim, Jim Fallows. Uh, we're talking, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, <laughs> like, something like that. We're, t- we're talking uh, about you last night, and uh, Rachel Maddow says, I've never heard of him. And and uh, Jim said, uh, and of course not, you're too young to have heard of him. <laughs> but anyway, I and so I didn't see it till I got back to this country and found a way to see it. But it was, you know, it, it, it it was okay. I mean, I didn't have any problem with it, and it pretty much died after that, as I knew it would. It was a. But do you think it was played. a? So he, what he was saying was a hunting pot situation, honey pot. Like he was, Gary Hart was set up with this girl, and the, yeah, he was the, set up. Okay. First, they went to the, a boat that Bill Broadhurst. Bill Broadhurst had called me and said, Raymond, you and Gary are working on a speech for Harvard, and I'd introduced Bill Broadhurst to Hart as a fundraiser. He's from Louisiana, was a, a friend of Edwin Edwards, and, mm-hmm. you know, a little shady, but uh, uh, legit enough I could introduce him to Hart. And he said, uh, I've rented a boat, and he said, I'm going to Bimini, and I keep I keep my bill fishing boat out there. And he said, Hart doesn't fish. He said, you're working with Gary on a speech. He said, come go with us, and you and I will go fishing while Gary works on a speech. And I said, great. I'll do it. And I immediately bought a ticket to Fort Lauderdale. And uh, Bob Strauss was the father of the Democrat Party. He mm-hmm. he was the most powerful man in the Democrat Party, and he was a friend of mine. Well, his sister was running for mayor. His sister-in-law was running for mayor of Dallas. And he had called me and said, uh, Raymond, you're going to do... Uh, and at Strauss's campaign for mayor. I said, I don't do mayors, uh, Bob. He said, yes, you do now. So I said, okay. So we were doing the mayor's race for her. And so the night before I was to leave to join Gary and Bill Broadhurst in Florida, the phone rang, and it was Annette Strauss weeping. She says, they've attacked me. They've attacked me on television. I said, wait, wait, Annette. I said, I don't think so. She said, I've seen it. I said, well, I have somebody check every day the television logs, and I haven't seen any buy, uh, anybody buying uh, time. She said, 
I'm telling you, on channel 612 or whatever it was, they're running ads against me. Well, it's some little tiny cable channel, kind of a neighborhood channel. I said, oh, don't worry about that. I said, you're so far ahead, you can't get beaten anyway. Of course, the mayor of Dallas is such a uh, low, what did I say? It, they lack influence. They, they have they have almost no power whatsoever. So, but what we've done is we've gone and organized the labor unions, the gay community, and Hispanics, and put a turnout operation together in those neighborhoods. And we knew that we were going to win because we only only had about fifteen percent turnout in those races, and we were going to be responsible for most of it through our uh, turnout operation. I sent Jim Jim Duffy, who worked for me to kind of babysit it. But so she called me weeping and said, no, you've got to come to Dallas right now. I said, Ann, Ann, I can't. I've got other plans. I can't come to Dallas, but you're fine. So she, after about 30 minutes, she hung up and I went back to bed. This was late at night. Phone rang again. It was Bob Strauss. And I said, hey, Bob. And he said, Raymond, Annette's weeping. I said, I know, but she didn't have it right. He said, Raymond, get your ass to Dallas now. So I said, Bob, I made all the excuses. that I don't care what your excuses are. Get your ass to Dallas now. She won't trust anybody but you. Okay. So I got an airplane ticket. I called Bill Broadhurst. I said, I'm not going to meet you and Gary in Florida. And I went to Dallas and blew off that trip. Had I been on that trip, that would not have happened. First of all, no bimbos would have gotten on the boat. Secondly, there wouldn't have been a camera. That's for damn sure. So, uh, so you're telling me that you're I, uh, you're responsible. You're responsible for Democrats losing us nominating Dukakis and then George H. W. Bush being president. <laughs> I think so. That's a stretch, but yeah, because <laughs> had I been there, the Gary Hart thing would have never never happened. Wow, that's that's an amazing story. Not it's so. Uh, Lee Atwater. I mean, he's you know growing up, he was like a villain. You know, and uh, of course, that great documentary about him and reading about him. Of course, he died not long after George H.W. Bush became president and he was RNC chairperson. What's your impression of Lee Atwater? Sounds like y'all were a little friendly. Both of you from the South, but what's your yeah, impression? Yeah, we, we were friendly, but not friends. We were mm-hmm. friendly. Uh, he, uh, I went to a United Methodist Church there, the kind of National Methodist Cathedral, and so did he, and so did his wife. So I kind of knew him. Uh, and we would have these coffee meetings after elections to talk about strategy and what we did and all that. Uh, and, you know, the thing was, he's a real intellect, very bright guy. Uh, he was, mm-hmm. he, I, I uh, had to admire his intellect, even if I didn't admire his politics. So we had that sort of relationship. Uh, we never visited each other's homes or anything like that. Uh, my, my total exposure to him in my life was probably three or four hours. Mm. It wasn't, wasn't that mm-hmm. big. And, but he had gone through a list of people to apologize just before he died. I just happened to be on the list. Yeah, he had brain cancer, right? And he had a brain cancer? Yeah. Yeah. He had brain cancer. Well, I mean, that's, uh, we, we have a lot of colorful people in politics, but he's one of the most colorful ones. Also, a, like a rock guitar player, too. What what advice do yeah. you do you give to candidates when you meet with them? I know you've been retired for. Are you fully retired? Yeah, I'm fully retired. Last campaign I did was 2010. Um, well, 
I have a little different approach. I don't think you can manufacture a candidate. I think a candidate is or a candidate is not. And so when I meet with a candidate, I first find out everything I or used to, find out everything I could about them. I do long, long interviews about their life, who their friends were, uh, who their family was. I'd talk to the wife. Then I'd go out and talk to the people they had mentioned, the friends, to find any chink in the armor, any, any reason that this person could be defeated, because there's always a way to defeat anybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, then if I thought the person was somebody I'd like to represent, and I admit I was a little choosy at the time, and it, I could be, but uh, mm-hmm. later that, that began to change as I got older. But then I'd run a poll, and I was, uh, he would tell me everything he believed in. I would check everything he believed in, or she. I did a lot of women. Uh, and then I would go back and say, look, uh, this school school thing doesn't work. I'd get off of that. The climate thing doesn't work. I'd get off of that. Uh, then I'd tell him the things that did work, and I'd try to narrow it down to two or three things. Uh, I actually learned something from Clinton on this, but I said, uh, find uh, focus your campaign on these three three issues and the, these these three things. But basically, issues don't win elections. It just it gives the candidate a foundation to stand on. Clinton uh, right. was always genius at this, and then he would find out what he, we did this with Clinton. We'd find out uh, what the people thought about all the issues, and we'd find out where people converged with his Republican opponent. Like if they were had the had the same feelings about Clinton as they did uh, his Republican opponent in certain areas, Clinton would get up and say, "Okay," he said. My opponent's a good man. He said, uh, we agree on school vouchers. We agree on this. We agree on that. What we don't agree on is a nuclear power plant that's going to be built on the border of Arkansas and Mississippi or Tennessee, whatever it was. He said, we don't agree on that. That's what this election's all about. He would narrow it down to one thing. Then he would say, well, my opponent is uh, an executive of the power company. Of course he wants to build this power plant. And there he would start taking his opponent apart. But he knew he was a genius at doing that. So I learned some of that from him, uh, watching him. He was, he was correct. So I would try to direct candidates to avoid things uh, that didn't matter to, to the voter, although they cared strongly about them, and concentrate on those things that were a clear distinction between the candidate and the opponent. Uh, and there were always two or three things that were clear distinctions. So that's sort of how I approached. Uh, that's really also really good advice. I mean, that, and it's if you were a boxer, I mean, that's like holding on to your opponent and then doing some rope and dope too. With because that's it. Yeah, especially in the South with Democrats. When you know, I think we're so polarized now. People that are Democrats in the South or Republicans in the South or any place. Uh, that we have these huge issues that we want to fight, fight, fight on. But, you know, if you're in a place where you might lose on some of those cultural issues, it's good to sort of hold on to your opponent on those things. And then, like you said, pick one or two things that are the real differences and just hammer those and say, this election is about that. It's not about that's, abortion. It's about that's this. That's right. That's my yes. philosophy. I, that's now, a great philosophy. my philosophy would be changing slightly. Uh, now, because of the polarization, which I've seen coming for a while, now because of the polarization, 
you can only work on the fringes. You can work on the fringes of women. You can work on the fringes of the elderly. You can work on the fringes of suburbans, suburbanites. You can work on the fringes of union people. Uh, so you have to slice the pie very thinly now. Uh, if uh, if you're going to win Pennsylvania, you've got to win the suburbs of Pittsburgh. I mean, it's, it's that that clear. So that dictates how you run a statewide campaign. You don't run statewide campaigns anymore. You run targeted campaigns at specific groups. And because of modern technology, we, you can do that. My son, who's a, a genius at this, unseated the walker in Wisconsin last mm-hmm. year by concentrating on voter turnout with with these fringe groups, with fringes of groups, and beat Walker, who was supposed to be unbeatable. Uh, so it's it's a different... Politics has changed, and I probably wouldn't fit into it right now because I believed politics were completely emotional, and they probably politics oh, is still yeah, emotional. Yeah. But I I've, I've ran everything on, on emotion. And now... You use emotion, but you also don't waste any effort on people who are not going to vote for you anyway. It's true, because there aren't a lot of people in the middle anymore. They just aren't. No, no, they're not. Used to, it was 20% we had to work on. Now it's probably 6% or 5%. Do you think that the all this micro-targeting and things like that, I mean, I'm fascinated with it, I like using it, but do you think that that has made it easier for, for campaigns, for folks like you who come up with the message and and the delivery system, the television ads and so forth, do you think the micro-targeting has made it better or more complicated, or what's your thoughts on that? Much more complicated, because uh, now you've had to turn over the uh, campaigns really to technical people, to uh, mm-hmm. computer people. It, you know, back when I was saying, doing Lloyd Benson's campaign, 82 and 88, the meeting was Lloyd Benson, the press secretary, Jack Martin, the campaign manager, and Bill Hamilton, the pollster. The end. The end. And we made our decisions. I produced the media and the message, and we went on. Now, last time I saw such a meeting, there must have been 20 people because there were specialists from everything, in everything. And so it's it's changed, and the, and the message is no longer controlled by the media guy, not completely. And at one time, I was I'm not a dictator because I believed in polling. I'd pay attention mm-hmm. to polls. But uh, but I was able to dictate message and, and uh, produce commercials uh, without m- many people getting in the way, without a committee saying no. Uh, there were no committees. It was me, the campaign manager, and the candidate, basically, and the pollster. Well, well, how do you think Not this, that way anymore? How do you think twenty twenty is gonna gonna end up? What, what's your gut feeling? That's both the Senate races and the presidential level. Oh, <clears throat> uh, there's a hardcore that Trump will get. Uh, I must say it forty three, forty four percent. He'll get mm-hmm. that no matter what he does, even if he's mm-hmm. institutionalized. In the meantime, which <laughs> should happen, but. Uh, He'll, he'll get that vote. And so Democrats to win, they have to do what I just told you. They have to find slices of voters in those key states, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, Florida, North Carolina, and peel away pieces of groups, young, old, uh, working people, uh, African-Americans, Hispanics, they have to peel away those people and do a turnout operation. 
you know, this was happening even in 87. I told Hart in 87, uh, I said, Gary, I don't think we need television. He said, what? I said, I don't think we need television. I said, I think we can do it another way. And uh, I didn't mean to do away with television. I was talking about in the primaries. I thought we could win mm-hmm. New Hampshire and, and Iowa, New Hampshire, without without television. And um, I'd written a memo on it. I don't know what happened to that memo, uh, but it was a memo that could have been used 10 years later, I think. But uh, I don't know. Every, everything's changed so drastically. I sit in the suburbs now. I've, I sit in Montana on a on a mountaintop and, and read, you know, voraciously everything, every day. Uh, mm-hmm. And I talk to people, I talk to my son who's so much in the mainstream that sometimes I have trouble finding him. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I keep up. I, you know, I'm, I'm not definitely, and people will call here who run in for, you know, state Senator or governor in, in the state of Montana and say, why don't you come get involved with us? And I, 100% of the time I said, no don't want to do it through. Uh, you through I think it. we were better at one or not. So well, I, you know, it's, a, it's a big question, and, and I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but what in your whole existence of being a political media consultant on the national level, what do you have any regrets out there that you look back at campaigns and say, I wish maybe we could have done this, or, do you, or are you somebody that just doesn't live by that? Oh, yeah. Every campaign I've ever been, winning or losing, I've looked back and said, I wish I would not have done that. I wish I would have done this. Uh, that's that's just normal. That's how you learn. That's how you progress. And there are a lot of campaigns where I, I – there was one campaign particularly. I won't mention the state nor the person. But uh, it was a re-elect. I'd done his campaign. He'd been elected. And when the re-elect, and I'd assigned one of my staff members to babysit the campaign. And he called me and he said, Raymond, we've got a problem. I said, what's that? He said, well, come, come to the place. And he said, and let's, I'm going to show you something. And I went and he had the campaign books. And he said, uh, where's the campaign bus? I said, Billy, there is no campaign bus. He said, yes, there is. It cost us $65,000 last year. And I looked and there was a charge for a campaign bus. He said, uh, where, what about $50,000 worth of signs? I said, Billy, you know, I don't use signs. He said, well, here's a charge for painting signs, $50,000. It was the candidate. Uh, and so hmm. I, uh, I resigned. Mm-hmm. And he said, you can't resign. He said, that'd be malpractice. You've got to finish this campaign. So I, I told him, I'll finish the campaign, but I'm through. You know, we're, we're not doing business anymore. But I regret ever having gotten involved with him because later I had to go to a grand jury and talk about he he had, he had then blamed everything on me the bus mm-hmm. and everything and fortunately I had voluminous documents on it warning this guy that he was breaking the law and the FBI came and took all my records and everything and so the federal attorney knew exactly what had gone on and I had nothing to do with it but still he said you know you have to go to the grand jury and tell them your name, rank, and serial number, and you're out of here. So I did. Uh, but I regret ever having fooled with this person because I knew he was a little shady to start with. Gotcha. What advice would you give a candidate right now if they came to you? Because people do come to you and ask you, I'm sure, right now, like you said. What advice do you give, let's say, somebody running for governor? 
uh, I would say decide what you stand for uh, and examine your past life. Is there anything that would defeat you? You better find it out now because, or you'll find it out later. And I would say turn, run a poll, and if the poll shows that people with your attitudes and your issues can't win, I would save all my money. Gotcha. In other words, I'd, I'd tell them to examine carefully why they were running. And I always ask that question that was asked Ted Kennedy one time. He failed. Mm. Why are you running for governor? Why are you running for the Senate? If they couldn't answer that, I normally lost interest in them pretty quickly. If they said, for example, uh, my opponent is so weak, I know I can beat him, that isn't a good answer. Then I had people say, well, the reason I'm going to hire you, as soon as I announce I hire you, I'll be able to raise money. No, you won't. That isn't how you raise money. That, and hiring me will not add anything to your fundraising. It won't. Mm-hmm. So those kind of people I, I completely dismissed. And there are a few people, I've dis- at least one I can think of in, in Kentucky, actually, uh, who I, I liked. And he, was, he, was, he showed great promise. And I really cared for him. And I took a crew into Kentucky and filmed him for three days solid. And I was in the, uh, my office was across the hall from my film editing suite. I did everything on film almost the last minute. Hmm. And the editor called me and said, Raymond, come here. And I went, he said, he said I'm going to leave the room and I have the film on the steam back. He said, just turn it on and watch. And then we'll talk about it. So I turned it on and I watched about five minutes and I called him back in. I said, is it all like that? He said, yeah. This guy turned into a woman on camera. Uh, he looked like a woman. He talked like a woman. He had breast cause he was wearing kind of a polo shirt. And, uh, I said, Oh my God. I said, this, this man is not electable because his television image will be awful. And I can't, I believed in candidates and I always filmed with candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, so the candidate called me a little bit later and said, how's the film? I said, it's beautifully done, beautifully exposed, beautifully shot, because I'd used Fiore, my old cameraman on it. And I said, well, why don't you get a plane? He had a plane. I said, why don't you come on to Washington and take a look for yourself? And he did. And he came to Washington, and I put him in a chair in the editing room. I told the editor, I said, show him the film. And I went to my office. And about 15 minutes later, he came in and said, I'm, on the other side of my desk, he said, Raymond, uh, I'm not running. I said, I think you're making a wise decision. I'll never forget that because I really love this guy. I thought he was great. Wow. But he didn't, you know, they have screen tests in Hollywood. There's yeah. a reason because the camera interprets people. And I don't think he was effeminate. I don't think he was, you know, I don't, none of those things. But he looked like a transgender in this film. Huh. It was bad. So anyway. Gotcha. Well, listen, Raymond Charlotte, thank you so much for being on the show. I've learned a lot. I think the listeners will learn a lot, no matter what they're running for. Uh, your experience and stories and advice is gonna is gonna help a lot of people decide to run and and uh, and them going forward. So, thank you very much for your time. Happy to talk to you. Call again. All right. Thanks a lot, sir. Want to learn more campaign secrets? Want to learn how to start raising money for your campaign? Even during these uncertain and unpredictable times, you want to know how to craft a winning campaign message? 
then you need my free ebook, Campaign Fundraising Secrets. Head on over to campaignfundraisingsecrets.com now. Put in your name and email and you can download a copy of this easy to read and implement guide. While you're there, sign up for your free seven day campaign secrets challenge. They'll walk you through how to campaign in the middle of this crisis, creating your fundraising system, crafting a great campaign message, and much, much more. I hope you learned a lot today, and I'll see you next time on the Campaign Secrets Podcast. Take care.